Hello, and welcome to today's Kaijin Digital Insights webinar. My name is Andrew Olson, and I am the Associate Director of Marketing at Kaijin Digital Insights, and I will be your host and moderator today. I have a few housekeeping rules to cover. Uh, all participants are in listen-only mode, but you may post questions in the Q&A window, and we will do our best to answer some of those questions at the end of the presentation. The presentation is being recorded, and you can view the recording on demand approximately 24 hours after this session, just use the same link. I promised our attorneys that I would cover the following disclaimer, and that is that the Kaijin products shown here today are intended for molecular biology applications. These products are not intended for the diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of a disease. Finally, if you enjoy today's talk, be sure to look at the resources section uh, for a link to other webinars we have scheduled this month. Many of these are hands-on technical presentations by some of the awesome Kaijin Digital Insights field application scientists. We also have links to resources um, that, uh, for other materials that if you'd like to learn more about some of the products that are presented and uh, spoken about today. And so with that, I would like to introduce our guest speaker today. Uh, his name is Dr. David Scarrett Byrne. David is an emerging internationally recognized research leader in reproductive biology, multiomics analyses, and bioinformatics at the University of Newcastle and Hunter Medical Research Institute in Australia. His research has provided unique insights into the molecular mechanisms and proteomic remodeling driving functional sperm maturation and fertilization competent sperm cells. The title of today's talk is the epididymis, balancing the burden and responsibility of fertility. Are you with us, David? I am indeed. Great. Um, so firstly, thank you to Kaijin for the opportunity to speak to you all today, and thank you for all for being here. So as Andrew said, today I'll be talking to you about the epididymis, um, which is really this, I believe, rather profound tissue, which is all about priming the sperm cell to be successful. But it holds the answers to a few key questions. And amongst them today, I'll chat to you about the development of non-hormonal male contraceptives and what actually defines good sperm quality. And this really comes back to a question of fertility. And fertility really is this, I think, rather interesting thing in our lives where it's this very delicate balance between when we're young and we do our darndest to prevent it to when we're a bit older and we try our best to actually conceive. And the reality is, and it should be no surprise to anyone, is that the burden and responsibility of fertility is completely placed on women, disproportionately so, be it physically, emotionally, financial, et cetera. To focus on one side, just real quick, looking at the idea of prevention, there have been several trials that have successfully demonstrated an ability, at least, to inhibit sperm function in some way, but it's been pulled because men have experienced side effects, including mood swings, weight gain, nausea, an array of things which will be quite infuriating to some of the population. And the reality is it's really pushed this idea that to really achieve a male birth control to pass FDA approvals, it needs to be non-hormonal. On the other side of this is when we wish to actually conceive. And the sad thing is we come up against infertility. And these stats hold true across most of the world in reality, but here in Australia, one in six couples actually suffer from infertility, making it a major worldwide health burden. The thing that I found kind of remarkable when I first came into reproduction is that, at least I think growing up, I think books and movies portray this idea of being a female problem, but the reality is over 50% is actually male-driven, up to 60, depending on what you might read, which makes defective sperm the single largest contributor to human fertility. It was quite shocking. 
even there's no focus on it. And this is compounded further when we look at these longitudinal studies looking at sperm concentration. So how much sperm there is in millions per mil. And these are projections from the 1972 up to now. And we see this rapid decline and updated data showing this decline is even greater. So quite concerning from a male point of view. And we've tried to circumvent this through assistive reproductive technologies or ART. You're probably familiar with these things such as IVF and ICSI. And the reality is despite these advanced technologies, the success rate is 18.7%, which is truthfully not good enough and virtually unchanged over the past decade. And in the context of Australia, this is coming at about half a billion to the healthcare system over here. So quite a burden and something we really need to um, correct. And I think this comes down to epimaturation. There's many factors at play, but we think that this miraculous tissue holds the answers to some of these questions. So you probably all classically know sperm begin their journey in the testis. This is where they're first created. And when they leave the testis, they're morphologically mature. So they look like you expect to look like that classic shape of a sperm cell. But critically, they're functionally immature. And what I mean by that is they can't swim. They can't have productive interaction with the egg. They're quite useless in reality. But this is where the epididymis comes into play. The sperm begin their journey in the proximal end, known as the caput, And they transverse this very complex tubule when it's unwound, it's about seven meters long. So it's quite the thing. And as I transverse down to the cauda, the distal end where sperm is stored, they gain all these functional abilities I'm talking about, um, including sperm motility, capacitation, and that ability to actually recognize and bind with the egg. And what's, again, when I join reproduction, kind of amazing. This happens in the complete absence of de novo gene transcription or protein translation. Sperm cells, because their DNA is so compact, they cannot transcribe and make RNA. They cannot translate a protein. And yet, from the top to the bottom, they have these profound functional changes without the ability to actually make them. So there is a, a second stage to this maturation process called capacitation. And these are the biochemical changes the sperm cell itself undergoes as it ascends the female reproductive tract. So we set about to try and define the extent of the phosphor proteomic changes in these three key populations, our immature caput sperm, through to our mature sperm, and then those driven to capacitation. So our lab specializes in mass spectrometry-based proteomics, and we use the EasyFOS technique, which is developed by Sean Humphrey down in uh, Melbourne. And it's quite an incredible protocol if anyone's unfamiliar. I'm going to sound all back in my PhD, you had to like do samples one by one by hand. But in Sean's method, in a 96-well plate format, the idea is in the space of two days, you can enrich for both proteome and phosphoproteome, which is quite a game changer, and you're really only defined by how many places you're set to use can hold a 96-well plate. And these two things tell you two different stories. The proteome is all about what proteins are actually present or absent, and what is the composition of your tissue or cell of interest. For us, of course, it's the sperm cell here. And the phosphoproteome is all about the signaling and function, because it's all well and good a protein being present, but it doesn't necessarily indicate that it's got activity. And that's where phosphorylation really comes into play. And for any of you mass spec aficionados out there, we ran these samples on Explorers 480. One of the first things we do with big data sets like this is to do some sort of qualitative control. And um, what you have here is a Pearson correlation plot. Basically, you're aligning biographics against each other and see how closely they align. The closer number is to one, the more like-for-like -like they are. And what we saw was really robust, tight data across our three samples of interest. Again, our immature, to mature, and then driven to capacitation. And one of the first things we did then was to do a principal component analysis, which is a very 
uh, almost simplistic linear way of looking at your data, but it's quite nice. And what we found right away, what you can see here, again, this is an unbiased analysis. We see all the immature sperm grouping distinctly to the right from their uh, mature counterparts. And the mature sperm actually group based on their capacitative status. So for us, that was kind of beautiful. You don't always get a PCA that looks that good. So really nice for us. So prior to myself, someone bearing a remarkable similar name to myself, Skerget from Timothy Carr's group, um, did do an epidural sperm perineum back in 2015. And Skerget got a really nice coverage, just over 1,300 proteins. But the reality is that mass spec has advanced greatly in that span of time. It's quite an explosive field from the actual technology itself to the bioinformatic analyses. And we were not only able to capture the majority of Scaregate's data, which is really nice and biologically validating, but we've really pushed past the tip of the iceberg and we've provided an incredible depth of coverage, reaching 6,000 proteins, which is unprecedented in our field at the time. And Scaregate also looked at the mature sperm population, uh, sequencing just over 1,000 proteins. And again, not only did we capture the majority of their data, but again, we really expanded the depth of his understanding, bringing it to almost 3,000 proteins. The first thing you probably noticed, and the first thing that certainly we noticed, is that there's this massive loss of proteins, proportionally speaking, 56%, and comparatively, only a small proportional gain of 9% is actually added to the sperm population, which was really fascinating and completely unexpected for us. And of course, with these things, we should always do orthogonal validations. And we did some uh, immunoblots. And we focused in on proteins we knew were of interest, such as ALOX15, which we know is important for shedding the cytoplasmic droplet. And what you can see is here, it's decreased into our mature population. And we did some ICCs just to really push that point where you can see these cytoplasmic droplets just glowing with ALOX15. And in our mature sperm, these droplets are completely shed. We also looked at the significant increase of caber, which we know is important for gestation. Again, those biochemical changes sperm undergo as they ascend the female root tract. And um, adenyl cyclase 10, which we know is important in sperm motility. So I think sometimes it's very easy when you're going to be data sets to get lost in individual proteins. And I always think about these things, it's important to try and understand them as a network and how they actually come together. And this is where IPA is a bit of a game changer for us in reality. So what you see here is a heat map. And basically, the darker the color is, the more significantly enriched that particular function is. So what I did was, on IPA as a first pass, we put in our whole data set. So just put in the entire sperm immature sperm population and the mature sperm population and see what kind of functions come out of that. Um, and one of the reasons that we enjoy IPA in particular is that it has this level of specificity that you don't really find in other genotology sites where the, the level of specificity of functions. What you can see here is all reproductive related functions in our immature sperm population. And what was kind of remarkable, again, as I said, these immature sperm have 3,000 more proteins than the mature sperm. And yet the mature sperm were more significantly enriched for every single repro function you can see here, such as sperm motility, function of sperm, and critically, exclusively things like penetration of the zona pellucida, which is really important for binding that egg. And in fact, the only function that remained more significant in the immature sperm population was production of male germ cells, which is a legacy from the testis. So this is all making perfectly biological sense and kind of beautiful to see that even though you can have such greater depth of proteins, it doesn't necessarily align with those functions. 
The other thing I wanted just to quickly highlight, things that we tend to do is we do nice classification studies. We use our big data sets. And again, IPA is quite a boost for us here, where IPA actually gives you a classification of all the protein types. And what you see here is a proportional bar chart of all the different protein classifications across our three groups. Enzymes being the classical dominant one, which makes sense with things like kinases and phosphatases. And then a yeah, breakdown of a few different types. But just, I guess what I'm gonna highlight there is that you can really extract so much data um, from IPA. I should say as well, this data set is of course, not just about gains and losses, but there is of course, proteins that are retained during this journey. And what we do is try and look at what is the significant dysregulation of those proteins. So what we have here is a volcano plot. If anyone's unfamiliar, the x-axis is all about the magnitude of change. So to the left, these tend to, these would decrease in the mature sperm and to the right, they increase in the mature sperm. And the y-axis is the significant testing that supports that change. So basically it's in gray, it didn't meet those thresholds. And again, what was really interesting is the majority of these changes, like with the loss and gains, were in the decrease. So we see 832 significantly decreased proteins, and then a comparatively much smaller 57 increase in population. So this was really fascinating to us. And again, this is where IPA really comes into, uh, into play. So we try and focus in on the gained and lost proteins and try to understand the functions related to them. Um, again, focusing on repro. The other thing I hadn't mentioned yet is one of the reasons again, we really enjoy IPA is that they have this thing called Z-store analysis. So the idea is that it actually looks at the biodirectionality of your data um, based on the massive manually curated literature. And what separates it again from the likes of David or Panther is that it actually gives you a predictive value on whether your, sample, whether your functions or pathways or upstream regulators are activated or inhibited. And with us, which is really nice to see, when it takes our whole data set into consideration, we see this predicted activation of sperm motility, of fertilization, passation of sperm, all things that make biological sense. On the flip side, the things that are found to be inhibited were all these sperm disorders. And these were all related to the proteins that were lost, which makes a lot of sense because if you were to retain those 3000 proteins, these could be indicative um, why some sperm uh, doesn't have its functional ability. It represents these sort of negative sperm selection markers. So that was a really again, validating thing to see in our data set. So as I mentioned, I'll come back to the proteome in a moment. It wasn't just the proteome we looked at, it was also the phosphoproteome. And anyone who's unfamiliar with phosphoproteomic data, one of the things that we try to look at first is how many phosphocytes. So the mass spec these days at a level where you can look at, I can tell you protein X at serine 124 is the exact one that's phosphorylated. So in our immature sperm population, we sequenced nearly 12,500 individual phosphocytes relating back to about 2,300 proteins. And we got good depth recovered across all our three groups of interest. Again, seeing this decrease from the immature to the mature sperm population, but collectively giving us 14,500 phosphocytes relating to 2,500 proteins. And one of the first things we checked um, is so in, in sperm biology, uh, when it comes to capacitation, this change here for the mature sperm, apologies, and um, the classical marker is tyrosine phosphorylation. If you look at a Western blot, some of this tyrosine, you see this massive change in that amino acid. And the other two classical amino acids, serine and purine, are largely overlooked. Um, so we were keen to see what's the distribution of those um, amino acids. So a really beautiful paper from Jesper Olsen and Matthias Mann 
back in 2006, looked at all sorts of tissues and types. And what you found was pretty much across, this, across the board, you found this classical distribution of 86 to 12 to 2, which largely held through in our sperm population, which was a surprise to us. But you can see additionally from the immature to mature, there's an ever so slight increase. And proportionally speaking, this could be quite significant and even more so into the clastids um, sperm status. But there's a massive data set, I can't talk about it all today. But one thing, one of the first things I did though, was I did an ANOVA analysis to see what's happening between these three populations. And I certainly expected a massive change between these two populations, given the role of tyrosine phosphorylation. But much to my surprise, the massive change was actually happening from immature to mature. So just to orientate you here, from the left, you have the immature sperm through the mature sperm and then capacitated. And what you have here is a heat map where gold is an increase in phosphorylation and blue being a decrease. And these first two clusters here, which account for 86% of all the changes we saw significantly, were accounted for in the epididymis, which we didn't expect. So I guess it kind of proposes this idea that the epididymis is priming that sperm cell for all the functional abilities it needs, whilst also ensuring it's in this storage capacity, because sperm is stored and thought of for quite some time before ejaculation. Um, and these last two clusters are actually more about fine-tuning or acceleration. So these last two represent capacitation. What we're seeing is it's more like a removal of the brakes and letting things go, um, whilst a little bit of fine additions. So it was a really unexpected finding, it was quite cool. Um, and one of the first things I would think about looking at these kind of data sets in the phospho is how many kinases and phosphatases are actually in this data set. And what I'm highlighting here is within each one, the number of kinases and phosphatases. And again, this is where things like Uniprot and IPA are very helpful. That, that classification I showed you earlier, you actually can pull out which proteins um, are kinases sitting within your data set. But for a moment, I'm going to focus in on this last one, what things are actually driven by capacitation, not the epididymis. And I'm focusing in on this really because when it comes to in vitro testing and trying to see if we can switch these things off, replicating an epididymis um, uh, outside of the cell, outside of the body is quite a difficult thing. So keeping it nice and discreet, I wanted to first focus on just capacitation. And using things like Plus, which is one of the largest repositories of phosphorylation information, Uniprot, and again, IPA, because IPA again has this additional feature where we have this thing called upstream regulators. Again, based on our massive manual curated data set, it looks at your whole data set or a subset, depending on what you're interested in, and it can predict based on the presence of those proteins, what is the likely master regulator acting upon these things? So for us, it's kinases, and what could be switching these things on? I should mention the phospho space is quite a limited space. Despite being fascinating, despite the fact that most FDA drugs target kinases, there is a level of mutation. If you're interested, there's a really beautiful paper from Elise Needleman and Sean Humphrey in Science Signaling called Illuminating the Dark Phosphoproteome, which is very, very um, apt. And I kind of nicked their data a little bit here. And what you can see is of the nearly quarter of a billion known phospholcytes, only 3.1% have a known upstream kinase, which speaks to a level of um, redundancies in these things. And of those quarter million uh, phosphocytes, only 2.8% have a known upstream apologies. And the overlap of the two isn't that great, to be honest. But despite that limited information, we were actually able to pull out 10 promising kinases to act upon at least three different sites in our data set. 
And these are kinases that we're now actively pursuing in the lab to see if we can switch off these sperm functions, be it motility, be it capacitation, acrosome reaction, which hold promise for those non-hormonal male contraceptives. But just to tie the two sides of the story together a little bit. So what I've kind of shown you so far at IPA, from our point of view, is the data set is aligning with the biology. It makes perfect sense. So that's great. And it's, it's good to know what you know. Well, what's more interesting and where we find IPA particularly helpful, it's more about what you don't know. And it adds nice validity of the changes we're seeing in line with function, but what's different? And one of the things I kept coming across in the pathway and function analysis was this row A mediated signaling. And I'm just showing you a snapshot here, but that led me to check repressors of row A activity. And there were several that were significantly um, decreased along sperm maturation. And in fact, some were even lost completely. And they coincided with significant increase, which is a protein of row A itself. So that was really interesting. I thought, well, there's something going on here. So again, looking back at that phosphocluster I showed you, we used IPA to look at the pathways that were tying these changes together. And what we found was nucleotide metabolism, which supports energy synthesis, which is really important for sperm actually engaging in that motility. We found the energy synthesis pathways themselves, and we found row A signaling. So what we see is repressors being decreased, row A switched on, or at least increased in its expression, and then row A signaling being switched on during capacitation. So this is really interesting us to dig more into what exactly is row A. And again, IPA, when you're particularly interested in functions or proteins, if you've used before, you'll see everything's very hyperlinked and brings you to literature to guide your reading. And what I found was row A promotes the conversion of globular actin to its filamous actin. And why that's important, that's a crucial component of the acrosome reaction, which is one of the steps in which the sperm head undergoes remodeling to engage with that egg. So this biologically could make sense. So we really wanted to explore the functional consequences if we were to take our mature sperm population and selectively inhibit row A activity, what would actually happen? And to do this, we looked at sperm motility itself. We looked at capacitation. And of course, the thing that we thought would make sense is looking at acrosomal reactions, see if we can tie together our bioinformatic analyses with actual functional data. So first, looking at sperm motility, what you have here is your mature sperm population and the level of motile sperm. We saw a slight decrease, but honestly, this is not that biologically meaningful. But importantly, with the inhibitor, we saw no change in motility. So next, we focused on capacitation. Again, as I mentioned, tyrosine phosphorylation is that classical marker of capacitation. You can see residual tiny levels in the mature sperm, driving capacitation, shoots right up layer on the inhibitor, and again, not statistically nor biologically significant. So finally, acrosome reaction where we hoped something would happen. And what you can see here is the level of acrosome reacted sperm in our mature sperm population. We drive it to acrosome react. We see massive increases we expect. And thankfully, we saw a significant and biologically significant decrease in row A activity. And this is great. It really shows, at least to us, that ability to use biomedical analyses to support what you know should be happening, but what are all the other things that IPA, for example, is pulling out and what could they possibly mean and how do they tie to our biology? And this really highlights that in our context that row A is contributing to the functional maturity of sperm. And it makes sense that if, just for anyone who might be familiar, if you were to 
switch off row A's activity, you might think, well, why didn't the whole thing drop? But I think we wouldn't be a very good species in terms of our fertility if knocking off one particular cascade would completely wipe out our species. So it makes sense that it would have a significant shift. And by targeting multiple of these things, we could then switch the whole thing off. But it's unlikely to just be one key protein. Um, so hopefully what I'll be able to show you there today is how we were able to sequence over 6,000 different proteins in the in our epidermal sperm populations. Hopefully taking this fact that it's not just about, while well, you think about gaining proteins and gain function, that certainly makes sense. It's also about the refinement of what needs to be shed in this context of the sperm to have a functionally competent, refined sperm cell. And we've been lucky enough to publish the proteome side of the story in cell reports uh, late last year. And this really, for us, sets the blueprint for fertility by understanding what's happening physiologically and being able to reverse engineer that to develop panels of novel fertility markers and understand those infertility phenotypes. And like I said, a combination of those 3,000 proteins that are lost and the pathways and functions out of the IPA give us an idea of what could be going wrong in these pathologies. And the other side, again, is that phosphorylation, where we're able to show you over 14,500 different phosphocytes and all those kinases we pulled out that we're now targeting in the lab to see which functions we can switch off. And I think a combinatorial effect of these will come together to be a non-hormonal male contraceptive. And I hope more than anything, what you take from this is just how important the epididymis is, that there's a lot going on in this profound tissue. And just a quick highlight, just to show you other areas we've used IPA in, and another cell report paper we had in 2021, this data, this paper has transcriptomics, proteomics, and has extracellular vesicles, tissues, sperm cells, all these things, allowing IPA to combine them together. Again, trying to understand the pathways and the functions that's going on and what happens when you have these external stressors. We've also been able to use IPA in um, our characterization of our cell line representing this tissue. We've also worked on the seminal vesicles, which is these sort of like angel wing-like structures that is the major contributor to seminal fluid. So the, the fluid of the semen in which sperm sit in. And we carried out transcriptomics and the first proteome analysis of this tissue. Again, if you look at our papers, largely supported by IPA, which guides us to our functional output. Uh, we've done the fluid. And just to make a point that not everything is necessarily, how do I say, focused on medical research, we also do some conservation biology. We were able to leverage IPA in the space of koala sperm. So I use a software known as Omixbox, which allows you to do like a cloud-based blast search. So by converting koala to human or mouse, you then can leverage that to look at what's happening in IPA. And again, takes you beyond that level of uh, David or Panther. And in fact, hopefully in the next month or so, I'll be submitting a paper where I've uh, repurposed publicly available data across 15 different species, sperm proteomes, and IPA has been a massive part of that. It's a purely bioinformatical paper, but again, it really takes you to that next level rather than having those sort of generic genetology outputs. And lastly, I just want to thank all the amazing people here in Newcastle who actually make this work happen. Uh, to all the students and research assistants, our collaborators, and in particular, Brett Nixon, uh, my professor, who is the person who introduced me to this tissue and has entrusted me with many of these ideas. So thank you to Brett. And thank you. Wow. Thank you very much for that uh, extremely interesting talk. Uh, it's uh, more uh, sperm knowledge than I 
ever <laughs> thought that I would have gained in a, in a talk. That's wonderful. Well, uh, let me uh, let me get to the Q and A here, and uh, while people are punching in some of their questions, let me take the first two questions, if I may. I guess sure. the first one that's kind of intriguing me: what what led you to this area of research, and and where do you see its practical applications? Um, well, led me well led me to this initially is kind of a funny one, I guess. So my PhD was more on these technologies focusing on uh, cancer and respiratory, but Brett actually approached me during my PhD to do phosphoproteomics on crocodile sperm, which I just found this fascinating thing, which introduced me to the world of reproduction and sperm cells. So I thought, wow, how amazing is this? Um, which led to my postdoctoral recruitment to this program. And I've been there for maybe five years now. That's what brought me into it. And where it goes, I mean, again, the applications, I guess the big ones for me at least is non-hormonal male contraceptives and trying to be able to, again, balance that and burden between broadly men and women and of course the IVF industry because in the IVF industry like broadly it's women and when it comes to the male perspective they might look at your sperm in a microscope and go yeah it looks good but they don't have the depth of molecular knowledge that's displayed here and by able to use like swim tests and so you know an ELISA-based thing like select positive or negative sperm section markers you can pick the best quality sperm for your IVF treatment. Gotcha. Wow, cool. And and again, thank you very much for highlighting your use of, of IPA. Uh, we really appreciate that. Um, but uh, can you talk to us a little bit more, like uh, what led you to choose IPA over some of the other software solutions? I mean, you talked a little bit about here and there, but, you know, how maybe how did you get introduced to IPA and, and uh, why is that kind of your go-to, it sounds like? Yeah, well, my introduction actually came during my PhD. We had a rep come to our university to give us a workshop on it. And my background has been a lot in informatics and I've used all the classic ones like David and Panther, uh, Reacto, and they all have their explicit purposes and they're quite interesting. But what really said separate IPA for me, particularly as I moved into very niche groups, I guess, is the, is the level of annotation it has when it comes to molecular functions. If you use those other ones, you don't get that level of understanding when it comes to reproductive related functions. They're more broad. They'll say like, binding of proteins rather than like binding of egg. Like it's far more detailed. Yeah. And that Z-score really is the game changer. That idea that it can take the directionality of your data and look at whether things are predicted. Again, prediction is the key word, activated or inhibited. And we've been able to take that data and prove it in the lab. That's what, that's the reason why I personally push IPA and have been signed up. I don't know, I've had IPA for nine years, eight years, wow. Jesus. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, uh, one question that came in here is, uh, how does IPA handle the uh, phosphoproteomic data? What, if any, adjustments did you have to make for that? That's a great question. So that, that is one area where you need to be cautious. So when it, at the moment, like, I mean, I think phospho came in only a few years ago, and that was, again, huge to us. Because, again, protein abundance tells you one thing, but the switching on and off of proteins is another, another level. So it's great IPA brought that in. The one limitation, though, is... IPA is not specific enough in terms of it's not about the exact sites, it's about the global phosphorylation of protein. So what you need to be cautious of is that IPA will take the maximal full change of the protein you put in. If you put the same protein twice, so say it's one site switched on and one's put off. If this one has the larger change, IPA will take that one. So two ways to approach it, I find, is either unbiasedly put the whole thing in and see where the maximal changes take you, or subdivide your data into 
all the things that are switched off and all the things that are switched on and then do a comparative as an IPA and see what's actually happening, which I think is the better way to go about it. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Uh, you mentioned the role of key proteins and kinases in regulating sperm function. Could you provide a little more insight into some of these and their potential application in male contraception or infertility treatments? Yeah, well, we're, as I say, we're actively chasing them up at the moment. We're hoping to submit a paper in the next month or two where we've chased the number of these kinases. So we're kind of, on one hand, piggybacking on the fact that, you know, the cancer research field has created so many inhibitors for kinases. So we can just repurpose them. And a lot of my collaborators here, Heather and Matt, are cancer researchers. Uh, have been kind enough to give us those kinases to test them. And those functional outputs you saw, we look at sperm motility, acrosome reaction capacitation. We've been actively chasing them. And again, like I kind of mentioned, what we found was the combinatorial effect of three kinases we focused in on, we can switch off the acrosome reaction completely, which is kind of incredible. So hopefully that will be submitted the next month or two and next year, you can all read in great detail all the kinases we found. <laughs> Wonderful, look forward to that. Um, all right, I'm gonna combine a couple questions here. The concept of sperm shedding over 50% of their protein is, is really intriguing. How does this mm. uh, how does the shedding relate to the production of fertilization competent sperm, um, and what specific functions are affected? And then there's kind of a, an adjacent question: Is anything imparted to the sperm in the epididymis? Yeah, no, again, great questions. Um, so yeah, well, that was the thing that was intriguing to us. So Stairget, when I really dug into their data, there was a level of proportional change they've shown. But given the depth of knowledge we've reached, being able to show this shedding really is like maintained across six different replicates in our mature sperm. So it really shows this is a real factor. Um, and the interesting thing, again, IPA led us to this, that all those proteins that were lost or decreased were all related to sperm uh, infertility phenotypes, as well as looking at the mouse knockout data. So I think that really shows that retaining them is what's leading to those subfertile sperm populations. So it allows you, for, in terms of impact, to use those as negative selection markers to get the right sperm you need. So they must be impeding function. And how this actually happens? Well, the changes we think one cytoplasmic droplet, which is a hangover from the testes, and as sperm goes epididymis, this is shed off, which would account for a lot of those changes. But there's two other cool things happening. There's these extracellular vesicles known as epididymosomes. And we'd be able to sequence them along this region. What you find is a small things that put off and bind to the neck of the sperm and deposit protein, but not just protein, also uh, small non-coding RNA cargo. And that paper I mentioned earlier with Nat Trigg, uh, Nat did some beautiful work. We're able to show that the stressors a man encounters in their life, like whether that's, in this paper, it's all about acrylamides so of diet. It could be heat. We've shown it with mind dust. Those things you experience changes the epigenetic cargo that's imparted from the epididymis in the capital region to the sperm and affects their microRNA population, which has an effect on embryonic development. We suspect placentation and is tied to metabolic disorders in children. So there is a paternal effect on the next generation that's currently not as appreciated. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, kind of a general question uh, here. How has IPA helped you take your data to the next level? Yeah, well, I guess this slide made a good way of even showing it. I think before I came into the group, I think reproduction in general, I think the limitations are reproductive, which are very nice, but the impact factor is not as high. But being able to leverage things like IPA has helped us reach mm -hmm. really prestigious journals such as cell reports and molecular and cellular proteomics. 
Um, because again, it takes you beyond those very, as I said, like vague functions and vague pathways and what other things are actually in play and be able to couple that between IM, mass spectrometry, bioinformatic analyses, but then, you know, proving it. Like it's all well and good publishing a list, but how do you demonstrate the list does something? So IPA point us towards row A signaling, IPA is pointing us towards different kinases. And that's how we're taking these papers to that next level. That's great. All right. Well, uh, let me take on the last question then. Just curious. I mean, you've already alluded to it a little bit, but what are the next concrete steps for your research in this area? Oh, great question. So we are engaging with IVF industries now where we're recruiting male patients, particularly those with infertility phenotypes. So we're trying to sequence their proteins and how it lines up with our modeling data and see if we can prove that point that we're selecting the best sperm to go forward for IVF. And the same way we have, because um, I'm at a university, we have students who make donations and we are using those samples to demonstrate that we can switch on and off um, those key functions, again, pushing it towards um, that non-hormonal contraceptive and, and now seeking the appropriate funding to help us get to that place. Wow. Fabulous. So I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. I'm sorry if we didn't get to your question. Uh, again, I'd like to thank our wonderful guest, Dr. David Scarrett-Byrne, and again, for uh, providing your very interesting insights into this topic. We wish you the best of luck in your future research endeavors. And with that, that concludes today's webinar. Thank you. Thank you. Kyogen. Sample to Insight.